What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila coming in with the funky hits. You know you get excited every time you hear that theme song. I love it. I love <laughs> it. It gets me going, baby. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Especially because Kale picks the fade. We have a fade now. We do. We do. After um, calling him out by name over the last few episodes, uh, Kale, yeah. li- he, lis- he listens to the people, everybody. Yeah, he listens to the he does. people. He does. Um, so Kale will be joining us later in the show uh, as we respond to your comments and your super chats. So uh, I'm going to remind you throughout the show today, please send in any comments, any you know questions you might have, either about our thoughts or about the stories we're covering. Uh, we've got a pretty diverse show today. You know, last week's show was very Afghanistan heavy for obvious reasons. I am going to dedicate my decode to um, the media's lust on Afghanistan uh, and war in general today. Uh, But we're talking about other things as well, including the Supreme Court's decision to reverse the CDC's eviction moratorium. Nando, what do you got coming up? I'm talking kind of about Afghanistan, but not really. I'm talking more about more broadly about imperialism and how the empire is anathema to democracy at home, how having the empire abroad actually undermines uh, democracy here at home. So um, it's it's like Afghanistan is the is the entry point, but really it's it's a broader broader topic. Did you by any chance see that Seth Moulton, a Democratic congressman, and then uh, a Republican congressman, Peter Meyer? Both took this unauthorized trip to Afghanistan just to do like this PR stunt. It was the most. So not only did they show up and kind of like disrupt an already insanely chaotic situation as we're trying to evacuate people from um, the Kabul airport, then they have to take up two spaces to get back home. And when there was backlash, they're like, you know, the whole point of the trip, by the way was to make themselves out to be like these heroes who are showing up to figure out what's happening on the ground, to save people. In reality, all they did was message that we need to remain in Afghanistan longer. Moulton himself has taken um, over $200,000 in campaign donations from defense contractors, and that's just the um, you know non-dark money that we know about. Uh, of course, there's dark money pouring into these types of campaigns as well. And it's just like, do you guys understand like what's happening at home right now, you know? So we'll, we'll talk about that more, but like this faux concern about what's taking place in other countries, when in reality, what what's going on in our own borders is what they should be dealing with. It's, I think that's an important topic, but anyway. Didn't that dude run for president, Seth Moulton? Didn't he run for president in the primary? Was he in the primary? I think he might've been. I mean, there's so many people. I I don't even remember at this point, but I wouldn't be surprised. He's been around for a while um, and, you know, loves that defense contractor cash. Uh, And then today for the interview, by the way, we're going to talk to Matt Huber uh, about climate change and Mm. how it's in the working class's interest uh, to fight climate change. Uh, But also we're going to discuss, you know, this myth of personal responsibility uh, when it comes to the climate crisis. I'm looking forward to that discussion. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, But before we get to it, why don't we uh, talk about this latest Supreme Court ruling, which I think we kind of expected. Uh, but I want to give you the reasoning for why the conservative justices say that the eviction moratorium needs to be reversed. So the Supreme Court has just ruled that they need to basically reverse the CDC's eviction moratorium. This is the 
you know, eviction moratorium that was implemented by the CDC after Representative Cory Bush, a progressive Democrat, uh, embarrassed the Biden administration for allowing the eviction moratorium to expire. Uh, so she made them bend to her will. They decided to extend it to October 3rd. But now the Supreme Court has weighed in and said, no, the CDC does not have the authority to unilaterally make this decision. Now, uh, the six Supreme Court justices who happen to be conservative feel that way, whereas the three liberal justices disagree and they wrote the dissenting opinion on it. So what they're arguing here in uh, their decision to reverse the moratorium is that uh, the statutes that were cited by the CDC that would essentially give them authority to uh, extend the moratorium uh, was not valid. Okay, so the statement from the conservative justices is as follows. It strains credulity to believe that this statute grants the CDC the sweeping authority that it asserts. If a federally imposed eviction moratorium is to continue, Congress must specifically authorize it. And we all know that Congress ain't going to do a damn thing. And that's right. that's really a huge problem in how our, our government runs, really. I mean, there's really no faith in Congress these days. But um, the Biden administration is urging uh, state and local lawmakers, including landlords, by the way, uh, to do something about this, which keep in mind, it's the local landlords uh, that from two different states, by the way, um, who who took this to the courts uh, to get it reversed and they got what they wanted. Um, the three liberal justices, of course, dissented uh, with Justice Stephen Breyer writing that the public interest strongly favors respecting the CDC's judgment at this moment when over 90 percent of counties are experiencing high coronavirus transmission rates. So, Nando, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, like you said, it was it was more or less to be expected. I just uh, I'm surprised at how quick, uh, you know, I always assume that these uh, cases take a long time to go from, you know, all the layers up to it up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, this one went surprisingly quickly. Um, but um, I mean, you know, the the what I find um, frustrating about this is that the federal government, quote unquote, has acted in a way to to stem the the worst of this crisis by appropriating, I don't know if it's like $50 billion or, or more um, uh, in renter's assistance. And they just literally can't get it out. Like they literally can't get it mm -hmm. out. We're so hollowed out by um, decades of neoliberalism and austerity that the government can't even, um, that the state government specifically can't even um, get the money out into people's hands. Um, something like what, 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 like ten percent of the of the total money has been has been doled out um, so far, just out yeah. of bureaucratic, you know, nonsense. It's it's that's what I find so crazy about this is that on some level, like the government passed the thing, they passed the thing to 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 help the problem, but they can't implement the thing because because our government is so is so hollowed out. Absolutely, and and what happened is you know the. Coronavirus relief bills uh, appropriated, I, I think it was actually about $84 billion, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Only 85% of it has been distributed. And it's because the federal government just passes this, leg uh, this legislation. They appropriate the funds without understanding that on a local level, these states don't have the infrastructure necessary to um, distribute the money. And yeah. so I, what 
it, you can obviously look at uh, the state and local level and be critical of um, the lack of preparedness here. But I would argue that with a global pandemic, uh, there should be something in place in the federal level uh, to ensure that the money is distributed um, as efficiently as possible. Now, uh, the Biden administration claims that they've made some changes when it comes to getting qualified for the rental relief. Um, they argue that, uh, let's go to this graphic that explains what they're doing. So the White House on Wednesday, for instance, announced new steps to help renters and landlords hit hard by COVID-19 pandemic, including moves by the Treasury Department to reduce documentation requirements to get emergency rental assistance flowing to hundreds of thousands of applicants stuck in administrative processing bottlenecks. And this really does remind me a little of the intentional means testing that was implemented when it came to the stimulus checks. Just get the freaking stimulus checks out there. And if it turns out that some families took money that they didn't necessarily need, tax them in the back end. But delaying the process just to ensure that people are like not taking advantage, I think is is dumb because an emergency is an emergency. Like by the very nature of it being an emergency, you got to figure out a way to get the money into the hands of people who desperately need it as soon as possible. So. Yeah, I mean, and and because states, uh, this is like the, how stupid our our federal system is, our federalist system, I guess. Uh, because states can't run a deficit legally, they cannot run a deficit the way the federal government can. The federal government can run a deficit, and, and it does. It, <laughs> these days, we live in a permanent kind of deficit, um, but um, the states can't do that. They can't do that by law. So, especially in times of economic crisis, when um, economic activity, like in like in the pandemic, when economic activity collapsed and basically froze, the state's tax base collapses with it. You know, because a lot of this, I mean, a lot of the state uh, tax revenue comes from real estate taxes and things. But other, ta- you know, there's other types of taxes, income taxes, and you know, things like that 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 fund these uh, state governments. And with the stopping of the economy because of the pandemic, they they lose capacity. I mean. This is beyond. This is the, the the sort of immediate crisis, but I mean, and it's been going on for decades. In that, slowly but surely, as as states states cut um, taxes, they they have to reduce capacity because they cannot run a deficit. But in in the immediate crisis, they're they're even more hamstrung because there's a, there's less tax revenue coming in, and they they literally cannot. They have to spend whatever they they take in, <laughs> you know. So, mm-hmm. um, so when they're when they're asked to do this like big uh, bureaucratic project, which is you know getting checks into people's hands, you know that that the federal government is just leaving it up to them, then this is what you get. This is this is just this was a predictable um, outcome from the way the policy was designed in the first place, um, and it's just like, I mean. You wonder, like, if it was on purpose or or not, or like, like if there, or if there was just like that one guy, you know, like the, you know, like the guy in like in the movies that's like, oh my god, it's a perfect storm, you know, like, uh, and no one listens yeah. to him, uh, you know, that that um, I don't know if there was that guy in in the halls of Congress when they were designing this policy or not, but um, <laughs> uh, it yeah. could have like anyone could have predicted this. I think that there's just this like long standing belief in this federalist system that I think is so incredibly flawed. Um, but also, like, inco- I don't think we could ever underestimate the level of incompetence um, in the halls of uh, 
the Capitol building. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just kind of incredible. Um, yeah. I, I mean, th- there's the a possibility best. that not they the didn't greatest. even, not the best. No, I, there's the a possibility best. that many of them didn't even think about the potential flaws um, of how this system works ahead of time. And they just thought like, yeah, we just need to appropriate the funds. Who who cares about, you know, really considering how it's going to be distributed to people? Um, so the White House also said that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the Department of Veterans Affairs would also increase support for at-risk tenant and landlords to stave off uh, evictions. There are very few details on that. I don't know what that really means, uh, but it seems like they're at least trying to distribute the money on a federal level. I tried to look for some more details on that, but couldn't find any. Um, but look, even for those who are fortunate enough to get money in their hands uh, to pay their rent, landlords are going to landlord. And so there is um, the Houston affiliate for NPR, a reporter for them, her name's Jen Rice, tweets the following. Yes, there's a CDC eviction moratorium in this country right now, but I just met a Houston couple who filed a CDC form, got $7,000 in rent relief. Their landlord received it, but decided to return it and evict them anyway. Then (sighs) Child Protective Services took their baby away because they were unhoused. It's just so unbelievable. How is it better to take a child away from this family like, wouldn't it be better to go after the landlord who uh, decided to evict this woman, any, this family anyway? And uh, Jen Rice also writes, since they've been home most of the time during the pandemic, they've, li- they've literally never been apart from their 18-month-old for more than an hour or so in her whole life. They're going through unspeakable trauma. And that's what happens when you have this commodified system for housing, when it's considered a commodity as opposed to uh, a human right, especially during a pandemic. The sheer brutality that you see in America, like that story, can you imagine like if that happened to you? Like, what do you lose my mind? Yeah. How do you even like the injustice of it is just, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we've got a huge show ahead. Uh, Why don't we show our partner some love, uh, Verso Books. They want to let you know a little bit about their book club. So Nando, take it away. Absolutely. You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag for as long as you are a subscriber. All memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in August, you'll get these four books. A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete by Gio Mar. Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Commons in the, Publics of, in the Politics of Truth by Matthew Fuller and Eyal Wiseman. The Age of Precarity, Endless Crisis as an Art of Government by Dario Gentili. And a new edition of The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State by Friedrich Engels with a new introduction by Jennifer Doyle. Love it. Kale so was after worried you that I didn't the have show. the Verso. Yeah, Kale was worried I that I didn't have the Verso read on hand. And of course, I'm, Kale, I'm a professional, okay? Um, unlike, you know, some people I know, okay? So I have the Verso Book Club uh, read uh, handy all the time. I'm always prepared, okay? You know what? You are always prepared. And you prepared an awesome decode. So <laughs> I think that was a great, you know, transition over to you again. Nando, take it away. Well, you're also a professional, and the segues are an important part of this profession, so well done. 
Well, my segment is about how imperialism abroad undermines democracy at home. Now, the withdrawal from Afghanistan has been pretty remarkable to see. The war lasted almost exactly 20 years, killed well over 100,000 people, destabilized the entire country, and cost us $2 trillion. But Afghanistan is just one theater of the United States' imperial war machine. It's a big step, to be sure, but the war machine rages on in other parts of the world. This is from a recent piece in Salon. He writes, quote, Unbeknownst to many Americans, the U.S. military and its allies are engaged in bombing and killing people in other countries on a daily basis. The U.S. and its allies have dropped more than 326,000 bombs and missiles on people in other countries since 2001, including more than 152,000 in Iraq and Syria alone. That's an average of 46 bombs and missiles per day, day in and day out, year in, year out. For nearly 20 years. Now, you may think that most Americans don't know this because Americans are ignorant, but you would have to excuse those Americans because often even well-informed people in the highest echelons of power don't exactly know how many countries we're fighting in or how many countries we're bombing at any given moment. From that same piece, we don't know because our government doesn't want us to. From January 2004 until February 2020, the U.S. military kept track of how many bombs and missiles it dropped on Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria and published those figures in regular monthly air power summaries, which were readily available to journalists and to the public. But in March 2020, the Trump administration abruptly stopped publishing the U.S. air power summaries, and the Biden administration has so far not published any either. As with the human casualties and mass destruction that these hundreds of thousands of airstrikes cause, the U.S. and international media only report on a tiny fraction of them. Without regular U.S. air power summaries, comprehensive databases of airstrikes in other war zones, and serious mortality studies in the countries involved, the American public and the world are left almost completely in the dark about the death and destruction our country's leaders keep wreaking in our name. Now, simply put, the United States government keeps a huge amount of its imperial adventures secret, hidden from the American people. This was the case when, early on in the Trump administration, four American soldiers were killed in Niger. A helmet camera worn by one of the American soldiers recorded the ambush. Eleven American and 30 Nigerian soldiers were returning from what was supposed to have been a low-risk patrol. After the shooting stopped, the camera was taken off his body and released as part of an ISIS propaganda video. The Americans tried to take cover behind their unarmored SUV. With one of the soldiers at the wheel, they ran alongside, attempting to escape the kill zone. They fired colored smoke, which would provide some concealment and identify their position to any friendly aircraft overhead. The patrol was overwhelmed very quickly, was unable to get situational awareness, was unable to get its bearing, was unable to fall back to a covered and concealed position. One of them went down. Another rushed to his side and dragged him back to the cover of the SUV. Their position at the SUV was about to be overrun, so they did the only thing they could. Ran to a position that might provide better cover. Except for the smoke from the grenades and a few scrub trees, there was no cover and no escape. The soldier wearing the helmet camera went down. Soon the camera stopped moving and some of the enemy fighters came into view. Then a final blast filled the frame from what apparently was a round fired at point-blank range. Knowing that they were asked sick to, to try and complete uh, and execute this type of mission uh, with that type of equipment, I, I just, I, I could not believe it. Congressman Mark Vesey serves on the House Armed Services Committee. Five months after the attack, they are waiting for the final investigation report. 
we should have gotten this information a long time ago. Why they were asked to continue to go on to this mission, I think, is something uh, that we all need to find out. Now, you may remember this little incident as the time Trump feuded with the widow of one of the dead soldiers. Remember, that was a that was like a big brouhaha in media. But the real scandal was that we were in Niger in the first place and basically nobody knew about it. The question is why? How is it that we live in a democracy, yet we do not know a lot of what our government is doing in our name abroad? Well, as Marxists, we must always look for the economic factors underpinning our social and political structures. And well, friend of the show, Vivek Chibber, has the answer. He shows how American imperialism does not benefit the working class in the United States. And not only does the working class not benefit from this imperialism, in fact, the working class is forced to foot the bill. Every time the United States uses its military, it's coming out of a general tax revenue to which workers contribute. But the benefits of the uses of that military, the benefits of the expansion into the Middle East, the benefits of the uh, trade barriers being broken down do not go to those workers. They haven't gone to those workers. They have gone to the people who employ those workers. Workers, therefore, foot the bill of imperial expansion. They pay the costs. They do not benefit from the profits that come out of it. In other words, the basic principle of imperialism is exactly the same as the principle of domestic policy, which is the general population foots the bill. In other words, the costs are socialized, but the profits are privatized. So there you have it. If the United States is doing imperialism and the imperialism only benefits capitalists while the massive costs are borne by workers, then by definition, the system has to inoculate the imperialism from democratic control. If there were democratic control over the imperialism, then rationally, the workers would exercise their democratic rights to either share in the benefits of imperialism or end it altogether in order to not bear the costs. Unless you think that this was just something that happened due to unseen forces, it was, in fact, a conscious decision taken by the U.S. elites who built the empire. Friend of the show, Daniel Bessner, wrote a book about a guy named Hans Speyer, a German exile who fled Nazism and came to the United States and was one of the major players at the Rand Corporation, one of the most powerful national security think tanks. Simply put, Speyer was one of the men who built the U.S. deep state an apparatus that was consciously designed to be outside of any uh, democratic control. Speyer, who considered himself a social democrat, was traumatized by the experience of Weimar Germany and its inability to stem the tide of fascism, so he decided that democracies were just not aggressive enough to do what needed to be done, so the people needed to be bypassed. Bessner writes, quote, Besides permitting Speyer to exert influence, Rand, much of whose research was classified, enabled him to fulfill his program, born from witnessing Weimar's failure for governing during crises without the input of public opinion. Participating in classified research pro projects allowed social scientists like Speyer, if they so chose, to mostly bypass Congress, as well as peer-reviewed academic journals, popular publications, newspapers, television, and other public forums when offering policy advice. Classified research, in short, made it difficult for the public and its representatives to evaluate, censor, impact, or otherwise hold defense intellectuals accountable for their recommendations. By shaping Rand's social science division, Spire helped institutionalize a system 
system that empowered non-elected experts to influence policy without popular oversight. Although Spire originally considered his participation in an advocacy for such a system discomforting, he nonetheless insisted that, quote, the loss of the American A-bomb monopoly required American leaders to consider themselves to be called upon to sacrifice secretly their own cherished values, meaning democracy, in order to enable their countrymen to live with these values in the future. For the Cold War's duration, the experts would have to rule. Now, this reminds me a lot of the John Cena character in the new Suicide Squad movie. Uh, it's called He's called Peacemaker, and he says something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, I just love peace so much, and I don't care how many men, women, and children I have to kill to get it. Now, of course, once the imperial structure was built outside of democratic control, it becomes very difficult to dismantle it through democratic means. The most famous recent case of this is the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or the AUMF. It was passed just days after 9-11, and it's essentially put modern war outside of congressional control. So basically what the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, the AUMF, people call it, what that does is it... it um, Congress essentially abdicates its rights and responsibilities to authorize prolonged war. That resolution that was passed days after 9-11 in this climate of of great fear and danger and insecurity um, has not been fully debated or voted on since that time, which is quite incredible to think about. Um, 80% of current members of Congress have never voted on this war. So this is something that is in place from a long time ago. And that various presidents, they've used the AUMF to continue and expand the scope of these wars. Now, U.S. presidents like Bush, Obama, Trump, even Biden probably are have used the AUMF as legal cover to do, for example, drone strikes in places like the Philippines or Libya. And because we created this structure, the empire does all manner of things to undermine democracy at home. One obvious example is how it works to militarize domestic police departments. Since 2005, the defense industry has spent over $100 million in lobbying efforts annually, partially to secure their interest in the domestic homeland security market worth over $20 billion in goods and services. Their contributions play a major role in maintaining a steady flow of militarized equipment to local law enforcement. Certainly vendors, people who, companies that manufacture the technology that the police are purchasing um, are are profiting from this. Um, The police, obviously, they're not in the business of of, uh, of profiting from, uh, from private acquisitions. Thank you to the comrades over at CNBC, of all places. Police departments now more and more resemble occupying forces within our own country, much like the ones who occupied Iraq and Afghanistan. The sector of capitalists who benefit from selling arms to the empire have turned to the domestic market for their goods. The costs, once again, as Vivek Chibber points out, are borne by the workers through taxes. And beyond that, almost from the beginning the structures of empire began spying on Americans. This is from the Church Committee's report published in 1975, which outlined the CIA's top secret operation Chaos, which was a program to spy on Americans as a way to subvert dissident groups. In the process, the Chaos Project amassed thousands of files on Americans, indexed hundreds of thousands of Americans into its computer records, 
and disseminated thousands of reports about Americans to the FBI and other government offices. Some of the information concerned the domestic activity of those Americans. Now, the CIA is bad always, and but at least it was it was designed to be spying on people abroad. It was illegal for them to do that to Americans, but almost as, as soon as they started, um, it immediately boomeranged back to the home front. And of course, this was only ramped up during the war on terror with the Patriot Act, the Bush administration's illegal warrantless wiretapping program, and of course, the Snowden revelations. And here is our good friend, young Bernie Sanders, talking about it with his good friend, I guess, Piers Morgan. And I want to bring in a man who's been against the Patriot Act from the very beginning, Senator Bernie Sanders, says the government has far too much power to spy on American Senator, This is just unbelievable, isn't it? It is. I voted against the Patriot Act time and time again because I worried about giving the government incredible powers. And I'm afraid that all of the fears that I have turned out to be justified. Look, the bottom line is that the United States government now has phone records and other records of tens and tens and tens of millions of Americans who have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with terrorism. I happen to believe terrorism is a serious issue. I want our law enforcement people to be vigorous and aggressive in going after terrorists. But we can do that without undermining the basic constitutional rights that have made this a great and free country. So I hope that we revisit this issue of the USA Patriot Act uh, and that we constrain what the government can do. So I want kids out there and I want every American to know, you know, that when you get on the telephone, the government is not going to have records of who you were talking to and what time you were talking. I don't want that kind of feeling to inculcate Americans that well, this mother is not, watching me. Right, it's not just phone uh, calls, though. It's emails, photos, That's right. video, That's right. audio, documents, connection logs, everything. I mean, what has been going on here uh, in the name of terrorism investigation is so all-encompassing. It almost embraces every single aspect of every American's life online. And first CNBC and now Piers Morgan. What is happening? Now, democracy means control over the society's wealth and resources. But when it comes to the empire, a good chunk of its budget is totally secret. This is the so-called black budget. And this little excerpt is from a piece in Wired magazine in 1995. So it's been around for a while. It writes, quote, it's the world's wildest high-tech toy catalog, the Pentagon's annual Dear Santa letter. It includes secret weapons programs with baffling code names such as Elegant Lady, Tractor Rose, Forest Green, Senior Citizen, Island Sun, and Blacklight, ooh, White Cloud, and Classic Wizard. These are the black budget programs that pay for spy satellites, invent stealth cruise missiles, tinker with LADAR, which is laser radar, and experiment on aircraft that change color and helicopters that evade tracking systems. Covering expenditures for intelligence and weapons research, the Pentagon's black budget is the most titillating portion of the massive, massive classification program that has swelled almost unabated since World War II. The black budget is the government's illusory and tangled accounting of what it spends on intelligence gathering, covert operations, and less noticeably, secret military research and weapons programs. It admits to no easy calculation, but by estimates for those who watch it, the black budget may hit... U.S. $30 billion a year, a figure larger than current federal expenditures for education. It includes spending by the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, and the military R&D. With program element numbers, obscured figures, and code names that read like Dadaist poetry, the details of the black budget are revealed to only a few select congressional committee members and sometimes 
not even to them. A budget outside of congressional control and even knowledge is totally anathema to democracy. That is why it is in the best interests of regular people here at home to organize and fight to dismantle the empire abroad. Moreover, the fact that the empire, which more or less oversees global capitalism, makes it easier for capital to exploit workers at home by threatening to move jobs overseas in search of lower labor costs means that it is in the best interest of workers here and abroad to establish links of solidarity to resist this stuff. Often, there have been arguments made that workers in America have benefited from the empire, and that, that is the reason why they are relatively better off than workers in the developing world. But as Vivek Chibber points out, as the empire expanded dramatically in recent decades, with defense spending going up more and more and more and more wars, wages in America have remained flat. The empire is simply not good for regular people here, and it has to be dismantled. That was great. And obviously, I agree with your uh, thesis here. I want to add, though, that we've experienced so many, so many of our civil liberties, like, have been violated, like, rolled back, especially after 9-11. And as you're listing, like, let's review, as you're listing all of the ways in which the government is acting in an authoritarian way in regard to imperialism, I can't help but wonder why it is that the like vociferous anti-vaccine mandate crew wasn't around to push back against the stuff, this stuff. Like, for instance, the AUMF, essentially Congress doing away with what our system of government is really supposed to be about, like the checks and balances that are necessary in order to ensure that the executive branch doesn't have too much power. Congress got rid of that when it comes to war. And everyone just kind of sat back and took it. It was It's amazing. Um, the black budget that you mentioned regarding uh, the, you know, Pentagon. The fact that the Patriot Act was signed. The uh, indiscriminate spying on ordinary Americans. All of that stuff is certainly more indicative of an authoritarian regime than getting people vaccinated because it's a public health concern. Like It's just like the more I think about what we've experienced in this country over the last several decades, but certainly after 9-11, I just, I mean, we get fondled every time we need to take a flight. <laughs> it's just, it blows my mind. But no, it's the mask mandates and the vac- potential vaccine mandates that uh, somehow come across as authoritarian. All these other freedoms that we sat back and gave away, not a big deal at all. No. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. something there's something psychological about, um, you know, going on about the, you know, the, the sort of threats abroad. I mean, that's why they always play up the new threats. I mean, first it was the Soviet Union, you know, the you know, even even well be like well after um, most rational, sane people understood that the Soviet Union was not going to invade the United States or do, you know, like anything like that, like the. Um, the planners at the at the highest echelons kept on kept on figuring out ways to pump up the threat. I mean, there was you know there's a famous case in 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 uh, during the Carter administration in which there was this like shadow group of defense intellectuals that were publishing these uh, these alternative um, you know like intelligence reports about the Soviet Soviet Union's uh, military capabilities and their intentions and things like that. Total fantasy, no, none of it based in any fact. Um, there was the the famous missile gap. 
um, that that Kennedy uh, ran on, um, you know, that they made fun of in in your favorite movie, uh, Doctor Strangelove, uh, which there was a mind shaft gap. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just play up these threats. I mean, then the War on Terror was perfect, you know. For, for this, uh, I mean that did uh, 9/11 did shake people uh, here at home pretty pretty dramatically, and now they're now they're now they got the well they tried to do the China uh, Russia thing for a while, but it's you know it kind of didn't really get as much uh, uh, you know it didn't get people's juices flowing as much as they wanted, so now it's uh, now it's China. Um, yeah, I mean you know as you're as you're talking about this, I think that the distrust in institutions in America is certainly tied to all of these failed wars that have drained us of resources. Uh, We know that the U.S. government lied to the American people about why we invaded Iraq in this preemptive war to begin with, right? And so, like, I I, I feel, you know, I'm of two minds when it comes to the people who are acting incredibly stupidly when it comes to um, the vaccine and the masks. On one hand, I get really frustrated, right? I think that's the initial reaction. But then on the other hand, when you think about how often Americans have been lied to by government officials, by these institutions, they're just, they don't believe anything. And and I don't know how to fix that. Um, Certainly, there's not much in the short term. Yeah. Um, but I think what you say in regard to uh, the resources that are being diverted to uh, these endless wars that actually don't bet. It's a redistribution of wealth. It's just like what I was talking about in my decode segment last week. It's a way to funnel money from taxpayers to an elite few, um, socialize the losses, privatize the gains and profits. And, that, and here, you, here you have it. People are sick of it. Here you so. have it. And a big reason why is our propagandistic media apparatus. So I want to hear about mm-hmm. that, one of our favorite subjects. All right. That's a perfect segue. We're killing the game with segues today. Well, I wanted to talk about the media's lust for war, uh, something that we started our show with last week, but I wanted to kind of expand on it and give further context, especially when it comes to the war in Afghanistan. Now, longtime Democratic strategist James Carville went off on how critics have been talking about President Joe Biden and his decision to stay committed to the U.S. troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. Uh, That deadline, of course, is August 31st. And regardless of what's been going on, he has said that he's committed to that. He's going to uh, commit to that date even though uh, something pretty awful happened recently. There were two suicide bombings near the Kabul airport where uh, U.S. officials are frantically trying to evacuate U.S. citizens. And uh, the result of that awful tragic event was that 13 U.S. service members died, 95 Afghans died, and that's uh, the current death toll which is likely to rise in coming days. Now, Carville is not interested in some of the way uh, the media has been covering this issue and more importantly, covering the troop withdrawal under President Biden. Watch. Well, first of all, there's no elegant way to lose a war. We lost this war 15 years ago. All Joe Biden was doing is telling us what time it is. And the hysterical and stupid coverage of the mainstream press, this is it's just, it's been awful. Carville's right, uh, which is a statement that I do not utter often. However, the corporate media coverage regarding Biden's troop withdrawal from Afghanistan has been hyperbolic, inaccurate, and of course, full of scaremongering. And do any of these groups pose a threat 
to the U.S. homeland uh, as opposed to the threat that they just pose each other within Afghanistan? Well, intention, yes. The, the, the current assessment is that they, they don't have the capability, mm-hmm. but that is the concern over time. And by the way, if you could do so without being under the watchful eye of the U.S., that allows you great, great capability to, to, to threaten uh, people outside the country, including the U.S. So in other words, you know, no, maybe they don't pose a immediate threat to the United States, uh, but they could in the future. And we need to have boots on the ground to make sure we're keeping an eye on uh, these various groups, uh, terrorist groups. In the case of the suicide bombings, ISIS-K carried them out and they've taken responsibility for it. Uh, I've even seen some segments that tried to argue that the Taliban, which is uh, basically enemies with ISIS is somehow working with ISIS against the United States. I mean, it's just complete and utter nonsense. And in order to get U.S. citizens and Afghan allies out of the country, whether we like it or not, we have to cooperate and work with the Taliban. But that's not what the war profiteers want. And you see that playing out in corporate media all the time. This is why it was so shocking And I got to admit, refreshing to see retired Admiral Mike Mullen, who strongly supported the invasion in Afghanistan, now turning around and saying, you know what? We made a huge mistake. We should have pulled our troops out much, much sooner. He argued that the United States should have ended the war in Afghanistan shortly after Osama bin Laden was assaulted or assassinated, I should say, by U.S. forces. Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Joint Chiefs of Staff from October of 2017 till September of 2011, is thus far the only, the only senior officer from that period who has publicly admitted that the U.S. policy and he personally was deeply mistaken. Uh, He says, it's hard to deny the evidence in front of you. Now, Mullen was pretty candid about the failed Afghanistan war uh, during an interview with ABC's This Week. I thought we could uh, build the army and give them a chance to uh, create structures which would uh, run a uh, country uh, in a much more uh, modern fashion. That just is not the case. So when you look back on on those years, are you really kind of beating yourself up over that? Well, I am, yeah. What I thought we could do, uh, and I advised President Obama uh, uh, accordingly, is I thought we could turn it around. Obviously, I was wrong. You've also heard President Biden say, look, we should have gotten out 10 years ago. We should have gotten out after they killed Osama bin Laden. You were there when they killed Osama bin Laden. You were the chairman. Should we have gotten out then? I think in retrospect, yeah, we should have. I don't think it was possible for us to just abruptly walk away right after we killed bin Laden. But clearly we could have gone earlier than we did. Did the mission fail? I think complete failure, no. Clearly taking out bin Laden was a huge impact in terms of uh, al-Qaeda and what was represented there. I'm not inclined to to just lay it on, yes, it, it was a success or or it was a failure. I think we're somewhere in between. Now, I mostly agree with Admiral Mike Mullen. Uh, We certainly should have pulled troops out much, much sooner. However, I would just add that there was really no need for the invasion in the first place, because the fact of the matter is, and this is always missing from news reports, the Bush administration had an opportunity to bring Osama bin Laden to justice at the very beginning. Uh, the reporting uh, at the time from ABC News, this is on October 14th, 2001, indicated that the United States rejected yet 
Another offer by Afghanistan's ruling Taliban to turn over Osama bin Laden for trial in a third country if the U.S. presents evidence against bin Laden and stops air attacks. But, of course, the Bush administration certainly had no interest in alternatives. They wanted to invade Afghanistan, and unfortunately they did. 20 years and more than $2 trillion later, the war was a complete and utter failure. Now, Again, uh, thousands of American service members uh, died. Tens of thousands of Afghan civilians died as a result of this failed war. There is no appetite left in the United States to remain in that country. But despite all of that, uh, you know, you have the media that had aided and abetted the Bush administration continuing to beat war drums. Uh, Let's take a look at this next video. This uh, fight will continue until Kandahar is, in fact, uh, a free city. This as about a thousand U.S. Marines reinforce their makeshift forward base outside Kandahar, raising the flags, American and New York City, a gift to commemorate the September 11 terror attacks. Osama and Saddam are the world's most wanted criminals, yet their personal importance is now being downplayed. We heard from intelligence sources last week and confirmed by by members of Congress who sit on the intelligence committees that indeed intelligence sources have said there is a 100% chance that America could face another terrorist attack as retaliation. I've seen combat all the way from Laos to the present day over three decades and I have to say that your unit was very cool under fire. You should be proud of them. We are and uh, we've been proud of them every day since they've been in Afghanistan. They've continued to uh, show themselves as true warriors, true war fighters. Uh, from the day one to yesterday, as you've seen that their training has paid off. We've got some great leadership here. They train their soldiers hard, both back at Fort Drum before we came, and even now while we're here, they continue to perform well. So everywhere you turned, corporate media was in favor of the invasion in Afghanistan. There were no alternative perspectives or points of view. Uh, And anyone who was even a little critical of the decision for the Bush administration to invade Afghanistan uh, was brushed off, was mocked. Uh, in, In some cases, careers were destroyed over raising some red flags or some questions about that invasion. And by the time we hit January of 2002, the international community grew concerned about how the United States was detaining prisoners of uh, the Afghanistan war in Guantanamo Bay. In fact, U.S. media coverage was dismissive of the fact that the treatment of these prisoners and Afghan civilians did, in fact, break international laws. From what I've seen, I've spent like a month and a half after September 11th in the state, in the States, and Uh, What I've seen is that American journalists have become more patriotic, can we put it this way, Um, which is not the case for um, the majority of um, European or, let's say, of Italian journalists. Italy has been quite critical about everything about what was going on. But going back to your first uh, question about the Guantanamo, the detainee story, I think that it's a clear indication for the fact that some trouble between Europe and the United States could come up, because in the past few days there was a lot of criticism coming out from Europe, especially from Great Britain, from Germany, from Spain, uh, asking the United States to apply and to obey by the international law. And um, as someone um, told me the other day, uh, that might be, you know, the the beginning of the end of the honeymoon between uh, Europe and the United States. 
Now, in order for Americans to hear that perspective, they would have to tune into C-SPAN 2. Not even C-SPAN 1, just C-SPAN 2 to get that perspective. But wall-to-wall coverage on the war in Afghanistan was primarily positive, and it was incredibly difficult to get any critical look at the way we were treating Afghan civilians or detainees in Guantanamo Bay. It was difficult to get anyone who was willing to criticize uh, the potential war crimes that were being committed by the Bush administration, certainly early on in the war. And the U.S. media coverage was, in fact, uh, you know, defensive about any type of criticism. In fact, during that same panel, uh, there was, of course, a member of the U.S. media who tried to defend uh, U.S. coverage and in turn defend uh, the war and potential war crimes committed by the Bush administration. Uh, Let's take a look at what a member of the U.S. media had to say. This was a columnist uh, for USA Today. Uh, I see myself as a left of center columnist, but among all of God's creatures who I feel sympathy for, um, the 158 detainees on Guantanamo rank towards the bottom of the list. Has there been a discrepancy between the U.S. and European media on the specifics of Afghan casualties? And why do you think that might be? Who wants to take that first? I will lay down the marker for the American view, which the Europeans can now then dissent on. Uh, (laughs) We're not being aggressive at all, Walter. I think the first thing why there has, why the unintended casualties in Afghanistan has been a secondary or even tertiary story here is because there are always a certain number of unintended casualties in any warfare situation. And I don't think that the abuses in this war in Afghanistan were systematic. I, th- I do not think that it had one look closer, one would have anything that would even be in the same definitional framework with a my lie. I do not think that this is rogue pilots dropping bombs willy-nilly. Just be dismissive of all of the awful actions that were taken by U.S. forces in this country uh, and be dismissive of the reason why we entered in the first place. Again, part of the problem is the media didn't really focus much on what the alternatives were. It was as if they just accepted the Bush administration's point of view and decided to go along with what their narrative was. And as I've mentioned in an earlier Decode segment, There are certainly corporate interests at play. There are war profiteers at play that certainly do have influence over the media. And I'll get to more details about that in just a minute. But I do want to also focus on the costs of this war in the form of human lives, because that also seems to be left out of the conversation even today. So the Associated Press reported that in terms of the number of American U.S. service members who have died as a result of this war, 2,448 of them have lost their lives. 3,846 U.S. contractors lost their lives. The Afghan national military, which no longer exists, of course, lost 66,000 people. The allied service members uh, also lost their lives, 1,144. But here's the number I want you to focus on. Afghan civilians. More than 47,245 Afghan civilians have died as a result of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, not to mention the 444 aid workers and 72 journalists. 
Now, I give you those numbers because it's not just about the money, which of course overwhelmingly profits these defense contractors that have a financial interest to engage in these wars in the first place. It's about the lives that are lost and the hostility that is geared toward the United States because of what we do abroad. Oftentimes when there are discussions and debates about whether or not we should accept refugees or why it is that there are these uh, various insurgent groups in the first place, again, what gets left out of the conversation in corporate media is how our actions played a role in the hostility that's directed toward us. It didn't just come out of nowhere. When you're dropping bombs or doing signature drone strikes on weddings and killing entire families, I think you could understand where terrorism or terrorist groups can stem from. But we refuse to take any responsibility for that. And you see it playing out in how these discussions are taking place in corporate media today. Now, Admiral Mullen's admission that the war in Afghanistan failed and that he himself had poor judgment is jarring and candid. Um, and it's jarring because it's so candid and honest. And those types of conversations about U.S. foreign policy, again, are non-existent in the American press. In other words, Mullen is the exception, not the rule. In fact, we're witnessing the status quo play out in real time. Basic journalistic ethics are consistently ignored. And the very foreign policy experts who opine on Biden's decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan have massive conflicts of interest that aren't even disclosed to audience and readers. So I bring you to what's happening today in regard to the troop withdrawal and how it's being covered in the press. The Intercept recently provided several recent examples um, in a piece titled, Cable News Military Experts Are on the Defense Industry Dole. Many former military and public officials appearing in the news have more than a patriotic interest in a continued occupation. And I was really grateful for this piece because they get into specifics and they Name various individuals who get brought on to give their expertise on foreign policy when in reality they have these massive conflicts of interest that are never disclosed to the audience. For example, Fox News keeps having on uh, this guy named uh, Jack Keane, a general who has a scathing, scathing criticism for Biden's decision to go through with the troop withdrawal. Let's watch. We had a huge intelligence, robust capability that we wanted to keep in place. It's publicly disclosed that we had a significant CIA presence on the ground, whose number one task was to stay focused on the al-Qaeda. After all, it's from their capability that we went on to kill Osama bin Laden, who was across the border in Pakistan. So that is gone. How do we track and maintain eyes and ears of what is happening with international terrorists, to include the al-Qaeda, inside of Afghanistan, when we've lost the eyes and ears of our intel community on the ground, when we lost the eyes and ears of the Afghan people, when we lost the eyes and ears of all the Afghan troops that used to be out there reporting what is going on in their neighborhood. What are we going to do without the eyes and ears in Afghanistan? Oh, my God, we should all be afraid. We can't keep an eye on all these terrorist groups. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? It's the fear-mongering messaging that you get over and over from people like Jack Keane, who, by the way, is a former board member at weapons maker General Dynamics and is a chair of AM General, the company that makes Humvees. Seems like there's a bit of a conflict of interest there, and maybe the audience deserves to know about that. But, of course, Fox News never 
ever discloses that information to the audience. He also sits on the boards of um, uh, Kyalum Technologies, Inc., which manufactures military chemical lights and other technology deployed on the battlefield in Afghanistan, and the Institute for the Study of War, an awful think tank that publishes defense policy proposals with the aim of, quote, developing the next generation of national security leaders, end quote, and is backed by CACI International Inc., General Dynamics, and other defense contractors slash war profiteers. Now, among the other talking heads uh, that you're likely to see on cable news segments or you're likely to read from in op-ed pages, without, by the way, disclosing their ties to uh, defense contractors, was uh, retired General David Petraeus, a guy whose judgment was so awful that he was ousted from the Obama administration because he leaked classified materials to his mistress and biographer. But nonetheless, I mean, we live in a country that loves to see men fail upward. And so David Petraeus uh, recently had an interview with the BBC. They wanted to know what his expertise was on the situation on the ground in Afghanistan. And here's what he said. We should literally reverse the decision to withdraw troops. I fear we would come to regret the decision, and we already are. There's no good outcome unless the United States and its allies recognize that we made a serious mistake. And guess what? He repeated similar talking points during an interview with Katie Couric. What kind of troop presence do you think should have been maintained in Afghanistan to keep things under control? Well, we had somewhere between 2,500 and 3,500 troops on the ground, depending on your counting rules. Uh, again, we had not had a battle loss in some 18 months or so. Uh, that's partly attributable to the deal that we the very unwise deal that we cut with the Taliban during the previous administration. We could have crafted a sustainable, sustainability being measured in terms of blood and treasure, sustained commitment. By the way, a sustained commitment would be the one that would provide the most a uh, solid foundation from which to negotiate. Part of our problem all along for three administrations is that we have repeatedly said we want to leave. Um, and then we expect to negotiate uh, with an adversary who realizes we want to leave and is not going to concede anything to us. We got really nothing from uh, the agreement that was signed in the previous administration. No. Retired General David Petraeus certainly has conflicts of interest of his own because, uh, you know, getting ousted from the Obama administration worked out pretty good for him. Uh, Petraeus serves on the board of Optic Optive Security, a large cybersecurity firm that contracts with the Department of Defense and is a partner at KKR & Co., a global private equity firm with assets in the defense sector. Neither the BBC nor Katie Couric disclosed those conflicts of interest because why would they? But I would argue that their audiences, their readers certainly deserve to know this because as these individuals are beating the war drums, I think people deserve to know what their real interests are. What are the influencing factors uh, that fuel the commentary that they're uh, providing uh, in these various outlets. Now, both Keen and Petraeus sit on the board of the Institute for the Study of War, which, of course, also includes two major defense contracting companies. The only real purpose of these think tanks is to lobby politicians and government officials for 
more war. Uh, Its National Security Fellow recently wrote in a blog that America lost the war in Afghanistan, but it matters that we fought it. No nation on earth has ever done more, get this, to advance the cause of freedom. No people has sacrificed more. Americans should be proud of that fact, even in defeat. The Taliban, which we, of course, went in to fight, now controls Afghanistan completely and has all of that sophisticated weaponry that we had provided to the now defunct Afghan National Army. So how exactly are we spreading freedom? All we do is go in and destabilize countries. We made the Taliban stronger. But they don't want you to know that because, of course, they want more war. And even the founder of the Institute for the Study of War was invited onto Fox News to opine on uh, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, Kimberly Kagan is her name. And here's what she said. Nothing shows the value of American force presence like the absence of American forces as we've seen in the past month. In other words, we need to keep boots on the ground forever and ever, permanently. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And again, readers were never informed about her ties to profitable defense contractors. And so-called experts who sit on television panels to discuss Afghanistan are so laughable that The Onion couldn't help but poke fun at them and their clear conflicts of interest. Uh, Let's take a look at a screenshot from a recent uh, satirical piece, of course, that they put out. Let's take it to our Afghanistan experts, says Anchor, throwing to panel of Dick Cheney's. They really do get it. They get it right. <laughs> now, in the end, uh, when we take a step back uh, to process the motivating factors, it all boils down to profit motives, both for the media and for the talking heads featured in the news. The press tends to think that having access to these people gives their broadcasts and their pieces some sort of legitimacy, some sort of credibility, regardless of how horrible the track records of these retired generals happen to be, regardless how uh, how many conflicts these uh, members of various think tanks uh, have. And the press also builds these relationships with members of the intelligence community, for instance, with the hope that someone within their agencies will hand them their next scoop. But of course, they tend to forget that the intelligence community has its own interests at play And maybe they should be skeptical of whatever scoop a member of the intelligence community gives them. But they all end up doing what they all end up doing is repeating pro-war propaganda that always traces back to lobbying by these war profiteers. Uh, It's been a profitable grift for them and devastating for pretty much everyone else, including the taxpayers who fund these wars, the soldiers who have lost their lives in these wars. And of course, those who are fortunate enough to survive come back and are abandoned by our federal government. Now, shareholders for Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics, they actually come up on top. If you purchase $10,000 of stock evenly divided among America's top five defense contractors on September 18th of 2001 and faithfully reinvested all dividends, it would now be worth $97,295. This is a far greater return than what was available in the overall stock market over the same period. $10,000 invested in an S&P 500 index fund on September 18th of 2001 would now be worth $61,613. It's just the grift that keeps on giving, and it gives to the wrong people. 
the shareholders for these defense contractors, the executives for these war profiteers. Corporate media, of course, is also sponsored by the likes of Boeing, which is why they're a little less likely to speak out against uh, wars like that of Afghanistan and Iraq. And as Eric Alderman uh, demonstrated, uh, the correct way to sum up the war in Afghanistan is this. The Biden administration may have screwed up the exit of U.S. troops and the friendly Afghans who helped them. But hey, this was a 20-year, nearly $2.4 trillion war effort that was built on lies and self-delusion and that we didn't really want to win in the first place. And so there you have it. Here we are today, a failed war. And despite its failures over two decades, you still have clowns demanding that we remain in Afghanistan. Nando. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, it's been it's been pretty interesting to see. I mean, I uh, I think that the media in general has been quite kind to Biden. Uh, Branko Marchidich wrote, wrote about this in Jacobin. And then as soon as he did this, it was just like they fall into place. Like it's just like blanket hostility um, towards Biden. I mean, incredibly ridiculous unfair reporting like i feel something like trump very unfair but uh there was um there was like a political piece i don't know if you saw this where it was like you know there was uh, a list of americans that were like you know meant to be taken out you know removed like you know given visas or whatever or you know given process to be removed uh from afghanistan to get out and they were like you know, some like national security sources uh, to Politico were like, this is essentially a kill list for the Taliban, you know, and like every every bit of evidence we've seen is that the Taliban's been playing ball with the with the evacuation, like that they're more or less like mm -hmm. they're even like protecting, uh, you know, trying to protect the airport uh, to allow um, Americans and, and foreign nationals to get out. Uh so it, well, that's just, the deal, right? That's the deal, the deal negotiated. They yeah. control Afghanistan, whether we like it or not. And yeah. if we want to get U.S. citizens, personnel, Afghan allies out of the country, we have to cooperate. And we have to. That, that's part of the reason why Biden has been committed to the August 31st date. All yeah. the people who are like, you can't do it. No, don't commit yeah. to it. We got to stay the Brits, longer. The Brits okay, were freaking out about what that. Do you, in my word, yeah. August thirty first. We're on we're on holiday here in in, in the UK. We can, we 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 haven't put our we haven't put our plans in order to get get the people out. Uh, you know, like yeah, it's just I hate them. Yeah, and the Taliban's like, no, we want get you guys out, out by August thirty first. Like if <laughs> yeah. if Biden just unilaterally decided, like, no, we're gonna stay longer. Taliban's not playing ball anymore, and yeah. that creates an un a, a, more of an unsafe situation on the ground. Yeah, but anyway. Um, it's a big story. I'm sure uh, we'll talk about it more in future episodes. But for now, why don't we bring on our guest? I'm really excited to have this conversation. Joining us now is Matt Huber. Uh, he is an associate professor of geography at Syracuse University. He's also the author of Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom, and the Forces of Capital, and the forthcoming Climate Change as Class War from Verso. He's also the author of an article from the most recent print issue of Jacobin titled Lifestyle, Environmentalism Will Never Win Over Workers. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Trying to stay center here. <laughs> You're good. No, I get it. I get it. It's a tricky, it's tricky. <laughs> um, 
So uh, I loved your piece, first of all, um, and I, I especially loved it because it's one of the few pieces that kind of speaks out against or counters this longstanding narrative regarding climate action. Um, oftentimes, whenever there's an effort to do something about climate change, the the overwhelming narrative is that it's not what workers want. It's going to hurt workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you make a different case. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, Um you know, it's, it's actually not that complicated. Like if you look at the sectors of the economy that we need to dramatically restructure and transform, it's basically energy, um, agriculture and food, electricity, um, you know, transportation. These are all things that touch workers' lives and workers struggle to pay for in almost every um, regard. And you know, um, there's all sorts of statistics in even a rich country like the United States where people are really struggling to pay for, you know, rent and uh, utility bills and um, housing is another one we need to restructure. So if we start framing uh, climate policy around decarbonizing those sectors, but also delivering them in more um, cheaper or even free decommodified ways, then you know, obviously you would expect a strapped and um, indebted working class to respond favorably to that kind of program. But typically the, 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 the narrative on often the environmental uh, left is that, you know, uh, these changes we're going to have to confront for um, environmental progress involve things costing more and that it's going to be austerity. It's going to be uh, belt tightening and this kind of stuff. And obviously most working class people have been belt tightening for decades and, and, and struggling in this in like gilded age economy. So that's obviously not going to um, create much uh, popularity or, or mass response for that kind of approach. For, for most of my life for now, several decades, um, (laughs) the, the challenge has uh, have seemingly been um, to convince people that climate change was real, that there was this sector of people that were climate right. denialists that didn't believe it, that then they watched Inconvenient Truth or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that you had to educate people. And once they started believing it, um, they'd be confronted with the scale of the problem and 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 they would react accordingly. They would they would mobilize accordingly. But I think that that has shifted dramatically in, in, in just the last few years. Uh, really, I don't really know what what changed, what dynamic changed, but now it feels like everyone just kind of accepts the, the, the climate science that there's very few, uh, there, there's not as many climate denialists as there as there were in the past. Uh, but the mobilization uh, did not happen. Um, can you can you talk about that? Because um, even even the right wing now kind of more or less accepts the premise of uh, of of climate change, they're just like, yeah, we're not going to do the things that you want to do about it. We're just going to like, you know, not let immigrants in or something. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's true. Like even the fossil fuel industry now is admitting it's happening and we need to do something about it. They're even pledging to reach what they call net zero emissions by 2050, which is comfortably long enough away that it, they can just make these pledges. But it's actually, um, there's still some pretty disturbing polling when you look at uh, the larger population in the United States. Um, last I looked, something like, I think, nationally, 43% deny that humans are causing um, uh, climate change, which that's not the same as saying it's not happening because almost anyone can 
can tell, <laughs> you just look out the window that things are not going well. But they, the 43% say that it's not human caused, right? And you hear this a lot when you talk to people about it. They're like, well, you know, I, I think it's sort of a natural cycle or whatever. Um, another really important poll uh, uh, found that I think if I'm, I'm sort of going off memory here, but I think it's something like 57% of Americans don't think climate change will affect them personally. Um, so there's a real disconnect. I think you're right that there's been this, I would call it like very professional class political narrative that the key to it, it like uh, in, in igniting action on climate change is to get people to understand the truth, to believe the science, to get them to like understand all the, the complexities of the greenhouse effect. And that has really failed. You know, um, it, this is not really necessarily a politics that's about struggle over truth and belief. It's more a struggle over, a, you know, a material struggle, a class struggle over who controls the production of energy and to build the kind of mass support for, for policies uh, to confront that kind of power. It, we can't just make it about science and truth and knowledge. We have to, again, create a program that would appeal to people, even if we don't have to explain to them what 350 means, which if you remember in the 2010s, there was a whole social movement called 350 that, you know, made the whole goal of the social movement, this very complex scientific target that we want to reach 350 parts per million in the atmosphere. And, um, you know, that's it, it takes a while to explain what parts per million <laughs> means. And so if if when you have 50, even 57 percent of people that don't even think this climate change thing is going to affect them, you have to appeal to them in their more everyday material reality, which is like I was saying before, it's a struggle to pay for rent. It's a struggle to pay utilities. Uh, it's a struggle to afford the basics of life. So if you recall um, a few years ago when the, uh, the yellow vest or the yellow vest movement in France sort of erupted against Macron's climate policy, which was this really regressive carbon tax, um, one of the things that one of their slogans was, uh, you know, politicians care about the end of the world, but we just care about the end of the month. Um, mm -hmm. And the more the more radical people would say would have slogans that's like end of the month or end of the world, same struggle, which is kind of cooler to kind of connect those two. But the point is, a lot of that working class revolt against climate policy was that how are you uh, imposing these carbon taxes on the working class when we can barely make it to the end of the month? Uh, to pay for, you know, the basic necessities of life. Yeah, I, I think that the um, focus on personal responsibility has been pretty devastating in um, actually doing anything that progresses uh, climate action. Uh, you know, all this nonsense about, oh, just stop using plastic bags, stop using uh, plastic straws, as if that's where the heart of the climate crisis is when in reality, uh, as we know, there are these massive multinational corporations uh, and fossil fuel companies uh, that need to be taken to task, which I want to get to in a second. But before we get to that discussion, you know, there's a part of the left that believes in this notion of degrowth uh, to mm -hmm. respond to the climate crisis. And you push back against that. Can you explain what degrowth is and why it is you disagree with that tactic? So um, degrowth is, is you know, a, a kind of academic framework that um, and a policy recommendation that sort of 
really thinks the problem with our society is the obsession with growth and particularly GDP growth. And so they kind of negate that focus by really saying that what we really need is a kind of degrowth and a planned reduction of, they often say, material throughput and, and consumption. Um, and, you know, people like myself have uh, pushed back on, again, in, in the context of um, neoliberal capitalism, where so many people are struggling uh, with austerity and struggling to pay for the basics is it makes sense to put a whole policy platform around, you know, D growth, which means less, which, and they often, one of their slogans is we need to learn to live better with less and to really focus on this politics of less um, is not, uh, is not gonna, again, resonate beyond the largely academic professional class people who I would argue have enough and feel like they have too much and want to kind of, live a more virtuous, low-carbon lifestyle. Um, and, you know, um, when you push back on this, they they often say, well, actually, we don't, we understand there's poverty and we understand there's a lot of people that need more, right? So they will say, what we really mean is that it's the rich countries in the global north that need to consume less and need to reduce their consumption. And it's the global north um, that really needs to re- degrow. Um, and as I say in the piece, it's just it's just the class struggle is not really between global north and global south. Uh, you know, it's between the capitalist class and the global working class. And the, the working class in the global north is does not need to reduce their consumption. They're again um, struggling with decades of austerity, wage stagnation, debt and all these things. And and we need to differentiate. Yeah. You know, sure. I would say. The capitalist class in the global north, uh, you know, the small minority of of wealthy people who have benefited from neoliberal policies over the last several decades. Yeah, they need to degrow. We need to tax them more. We need to take more of their wealth, invest it in public goods. But for the vast majority of people in a country like the United States that has this barbaric level of extreme poverty and inequality. No, we don't need to ask uh, those people in the global north to consume less. And that's not. And it's just not a winning uh, platform beyond the, again, professional class sort of academic and scientist who who do typically live these kind of middle class con- consumption based lifestyles and think and can see that they're 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 kind of uh, too much and that they think that those types of middle class lifestyles need to scale down. We we talk a lot about a. Uh, on this show and the, the the left more broadly, that um, any progress on anything really can only uh, be achieved through uh, labor power and and labor unions. And then some people point out that, well, you know, a lot of the labor unions oppose uh, some you know climate policies, things that you know they they oppose the the canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline and things like that. Um, can you talk about that the the relationship? between uh, labor and, and, and climate and whether that's changing or, or, or anything about it? Yeah, so this is something Anna brought up at the beginning. And we sort of always have this narrative that it's like jobs versus the environment and the workers are against environmental policy. And I think there, there are good reasons for that because, again, in this very precarious neoliberal capitalism where there's just the welfare state's been eviscerated 
And if workers do lose their job laying pipelines or working in coal mines, it's not like there's a robust safety net for them. So when they're given the choice of keeping their job or protecting, there was a famous struggle over uh, the spotted owl in the Pacific Northwest uh, and whether or not we should stop logging in that area to protect this endangered species. And yeah, workers are going to say, no, we'd like to keep our jobs and our livelihoods. Um, but there, there's no, um, you know, like one-to-one relationship between the labor union movement and um, environmentalism. In fact, in the 60s and 70s, one of the most famous environmentalists at the time was labor union leader Tony Mizaki, who was a uh, at a time vice president of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, who really understood that his workers in the union were being poisoned by the chemical industry that they worked in. And so he mobilized the, the infrastructure of those unions to push for um, what eventually became uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, OSHA. And, and it really he had he used the power of unions and um, as mass organizations to really push that law through Congress and build a more environmentally safe um, chemical industry, not only for water and air and spotted owls, but also the workers that work in in those industries. Um, So, but over the last, I'd say, couple, three decades, it's almost as like the environmental movement just um, ignores uh, the union movement. And, you know, famously, even the AFL-CIO came out against the, you know, Green New Deal as it was rolled out by AOC and other leftist think tanks. And and, and one of their biggest um, complaints was that no one really asked them about the Green New Deal and, and tried to get them involved in the construction of the policies around what, what were imagined as the Green New Deal. But we've found that, um, that, basically organizing initiatives that do bring unions into the the room at the beginning um, uh, actually and get buy-in from those unions and the workers and their members in those unions can actually come together and, and build really um, labor centric policy visions. So um, in uh, Maine, they were able to work with unions directly in the construction of this kind of state-based Green New Deal policy and uh, they were able to pass that that legislation with the unions fully behind them and 100% backing them. And unions still, you know, we talk about union decline and it's serious and problematic, but unions still have tremendous power. They're some of the still the most powerful institutions left on the left. Um, another good example is something called Climate Jobs New York that really, again, um, sort of built from the ground up a policy framework with unions at the table, constructed, um, you know, uh, policies that were meant towards decarbonizing energy and all this kind of stuff, but wanted to put unions um, uh, in the driver's seat in terms of getting the contracts and, 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 and being part of the jobs that are created in this new kind of energy transition. So it's really, uh, it's not sort of inevitable that unions will be hostile to environmental politics, it's um, it it just it's been that that oftentimes they're just sort of ignored or sidestepped in in um, what gets called environmental politics over the last couple decades. 
So um, in your Jacobin piece, you wrote, first, the Green New Deal was certainly a breakthrough for environmental politics in its assertion of a working class program. Yet we should keep in mind a difference articulated by British trade unionist Andrew Murray between a class focused and a class rooted politics. The recent resurgence of the left uh, is clearly a politics uh, for but not necessarily of the working class. So can you discuss the difference between um, uh, between like a class focused and a class rooted politics? So uh, I think the Green New Deal was a real breakthrough because it finally started even mentioning or talking about policies that would actually benefit the lives of the mass, vast majority of society, the working class. Um, you know, it talked about uh, you know, um, you know, decommodifying electricity systems. It talked about public housing. It talked about all these things as part of the decarbonize, decarbonization transition. Um, but it was almost like um, it was like a bunch of uh, essentially uh, academics and, and think tank people and NGO people sort of discovered like, yeah, this is the way forward. Um, to build a politics that appeals to the working class and, um, and and so forth. So it was focused on appealing to that class, but it was not really embedded in the working class. And, um, you know, as someone who's very much in the professional class, myself working at a university, you kind of, you forget sometimes that two thirds of the United States doesn't have a college degree and the vast majority of people in this society are working low wage, um, really uh, precarious types of jobs, struggling to to afford the basics of life. And and until we can embed this kind of again this working class environmental politics in the communities of uh, of that majority, um, it's not going to be rooted in the class like the um, like. You know, again, that Tony Mizaki example, he was literally going to union locals all across the country. And these union locals were firmly embedded in these, um, you know, blue collar working class communities, people that worked in these chemical plants. And and he was building from the ground up this kind of class rooted environmental politics. Um, now, just to give you a quick example, um, you know, there's been a lot of excitement on the Green New Deal left le- recently about public ownership of electricity and building public power. And Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush had this really, I think, pretty amazing resolution uh, they were going to introduce in the Congress about basically making electricity a human right. And again, it's very focused on delivering material gains to the working class. But if you look at who um, was sort of co-signed or the endorsements for this resolution, from Bush and Bowman, and it's just a it's a long list of NGOs, you know. Um, and there's not a single union on on that list. There actually is a single union, but it's a union based in Puerto Rico, and there's not a single union based in the the continental United States um, uh, that's in the sector they want to turn over to public ownership, which is electricity. And something I argue in the piece is that electricity. Uh, is one of the, particularly electric utilities, if you look at the data on union coverage and union density, it's one of the most um, union dense parts of our entire economy. It has upwards of 25, 26% uh, union density. So the electric utility sector's got all this existing 
union power already in it. Um, and you have this Green New Deal push to pu- towards public ownership. But again, the, the push is not class rooted. It's not rooted in those unions and those locals and the, the communities that actually work in the electric sector who have the most to win or lose with regards to shifting towards public ownership. So I think that's a good example of a really great idea, a great class-focused electricity is a human right, yay, but not class-rooted in the actual people that work in the very industry we need to transform. Was Cory Bush, she's working class, and Jamal Bowman, he's in, he was in the union, he was in the teacher's union. Uh, what, yeah. what happened there? Well, you know, um, Cory Bush, is like, <laughs> I love these people, so I don't, um, you know, Cory Bush like came out of the you know, uprising in Ferguson and, 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 you know, working class struggles and actually grew up in St. Louis. So I have a great connection with Cory Bush, but, um, and, and also Jamal Bowman worked in the school in the education sector. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's really cool because that's where we've seen perhaps the most militancy in the labor movement in the last couple of years. Um, and it's really inspiring. And, and, but it's not, you know, ed, the education sector is not exactly um, the the linchpin of the sector that we need to transform to solve climate change. Um, it's a very low carbon sector. But if we're going to solve climate change, we basically the first step is basically turning our electricity system to a zero carbon system as soon as possible and then electrifying a bunch of other stuff. And so and then again, it's, you know, Jamal Bowman. um wonderful principle, but he's not, he's not in that electric sector. Um, and, and this whole public power push is, is had very limited engagement with the, um, the folks that work in that sector that they're trying to radically transform through the public power campaigns. You know, I I like that you focus on how encouraging lifestyle changes, um, isn't the best, strategy in responding to climate change. But for people who feel in the moment uh, powerless uh, Mm -hmm. and want to do something immediately, they want to take part. Like, What kind of advice would you give them? I hear this from my students who I, you know, I teach this stuff and it often terrifies them and they're they're despondent and dispirited, want to know how they can help. so my stock answer to that is a good lifestyle change that you can all make is start organizing <laughs> political movements, which is what we need. You know, I tell my students, why don't you join a, a you know, a, a organization? Uh, you know, people now are, you know, joining DSA in droves. Um, but also, you know, I've often <laughs> told students like, well, if, if, if electricity is this sector we need to transform and um, it is got these, you know, good union jobs and, you know, unions representing the workers. So why, why not go try to work in that sector and do what many socialists call kind of a rank and file um, approach to getting jobs in the, in the very sector we need to build up militancy and control. So um, it's actually those of us, <laughs> that try to organize in our everyday lives. It t- it's a huge lifestyle uh, choice and it takes a lot of time and it's really hard. It's extremely hard work. Um, and if we spent as much time kind of trying to work on uh, political organizing as we did 
sort of worrying about our consumption choices in the market, I think it would be just better. Um, that said, you know, it's fine to, 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 to try to um, choose the low carbon products and have conversations with our neighbors and our families about the kind of supply chains and, you know, why it's, you know, lower carbon to do this or that. And it can be educational to have those conversations. So I don't, it's not like I'm, I, I propose we all just sort of drive Hummers and eat, eat, um, uh, steaks every day and just live this kind of, uh, gluttonous, um, consumer lifestyle. It's just that capitalism, um, doesn't give us a lot of freedom in our lives and it does give us a tiny bit of freedom in the market to choose what we consume. And so I feel I worry too, too many times that uh, a lot of environmentalists look at that tiny bit of freedom we have in the market and make too much of it. Like this is the way to solve our environmental crisis through, through choice, through the marketplace, through consumerism. And it's just not, it's going to be how stuff changes through history, through struggle and through social movements that can actually challenge the power of capital and not just, uh, uh, you know, make a decision in, in, in the consumer market. Right. And I mean, it certainly uh, robs the naysayers of, I think, their most popular talking points that kind of keeps us in the same place that we're at, right? Uh, like the fear mongering about how, oh, these environmental activists want to stop you from uh, having your barbecues. And, like, it sounds ridiculous, but it it works. Like people don't want to let go of the very few pleasures that are left, you know, yeah. like a plastic straw that. in my giant Starbucks Frappuccino, <laughs> you know, the paper straw, it withers away after like three sips, it does. you know, how dare you with that plastic straw? Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to bring this up cause I was just looking at it this morning. Um, it's a poll from Gallup and it says, um, do you consider yourself an environmentalist or not? And in 1989, 76% said yes. And in 2021, in March, 41%. What happened there? What happened there? What changed? (laughs) Well, I would argue. Was it just that the environmentalists are too annoying? Or was it the fossil fuel companies' propaganda efforts? Or a bit of both? What happened there? Little of column A and little of column B is is a Simpsons quote I like. Um, I would. You know, this is kind of the period in the 90s and 2000s when I became kind of aware of environmentalism and and sort of politicized around it. And I would say, you know, I can't speak for the 80s as much, but it seems to be in the 90s and 2000s, this very individualist, consumerist approach to environmental virtue and, and being green and being low carbon and lowering your carbon footprint. That became just the fixation and the focus of environmental politics. Um uh, throughout the 90s and uh, 20 and the knots in the 2010s. And that's precisely the period where you see this precipitous drop in the popularity of what is considered environmentalism. Um, yep. You know, I'm just thinking of the, uh, why am I bringing up all these cartoons? But South Park, where they, they portray the environmentalist as like these people that just like um, the smell of their own, um, you know what, and and no, I don't just know like what. obnoxious, obnoxious. I don't know what. Like, what. What are they? What are they? The smell of their own what? Farts. <laughs> <laughs> but but they're like they're portrayed as like Prius driving, just like self congratulating, you know, obnoxious people, and that's unfortunately with this focus on individual carbon footprints, with this focus on individual lifestyle changes, it's alienating to the mass of 
ordinary folks in 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 society and it really shown by that that poll so i think yeah, environmentalists absolutely. like need to be a little reflexive about what's happening why are they less popular what what can they do to build more popular support for their policies because without that we're not going to win we're not going to have the power to take on the people really responsible yeah, I couldn't agree more. Matt Huber, thank you so much for taking the time to have the discussion with us. Uh, everyone, please go check out his latest piece in Jacobin, the print issue, uh, and it's titled Lifestyle Environmentalism Will Never Win Over Workers. And he has published uh, the book Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom, and the Forces of Capital, and the forthcoming book Climate Change as Class War from Verso. And Lucky for you guys, Verso has a pretty sweet book club that you can join. So you should definitely mm -hmm. do that and get Matt's book. Matt, thank you again. Thanks thank so you. much for having me. I just want to say I did a whole decode on Tony Mazzucchi, who was mentioned in, in that interview. You should check it out on mm -hmm. the Jacobin YouTube page. Connor Kilpatrick wrote a profile of him in Jacobin in the magazine. I forgot which issue. I don't memorize the issues, but it's in there somewhere. Um, it's probably online. So you yeah. haven't You haven't memorized the issues? No, I haven't memorized the issues. Not yet. I'm almost there. All right. Well, we got to work on this for next week. This is unacceptable. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah uh, What's up, Kale? Thanks. Yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks to Matt for coming on. Matt's a homie. Matt's great. Um, and like, it's kind of in some ways, like, so the, the, here's the dialectic for you folks. Matt is fantastic. Mm. But part of the reason why Matt is fantastic is because like the left is not as good on environmental politics as Matt and the left should be better about environmental politics. So that's, we're all aspiring to be Matt. Matt's great now. And in the future, if, if Matt and, and us succeed, he will be less great by comparison, but he will be a, uh, one of our path breakers uh, for, uh, you know, saying, Hey, maybe we should focus on the working class when it comes to the environment, maybe, maybe that's a good place to start. So, uh, always love having Matt join us on the show, on the channel, and we've done other things together. Um, yes, yes. Matt, Matt, you and Matt are best friends. Ha ha ha. That's great. You know, you could, you and Matt do other things. You guys <laughs> hang out on the weekends. You know, it's this great. is the part of the show where Nando, uh, <laughs> Nando and Kale engage in their banter and I awkwardly sit by and, and, and consume it. <laughs> you just, you just can't appreciate that Matt and I have a really organic <laughs> connection. <laughs> this is, Anna, this is how, this is how men, men bond. You Nando and I are men, paid men to I be on the yeah. show together yeah. but matt and i right now <laughs> you guys just hang out <laughs> fun. i'm still here <laughs> all right all right go back <laughs> anyways um i'm here because we do super chats at the end of the show uh and there's a couple that i wanted to get to but uh please send in any questions comments anything you want us to address in the last couple minutes before we leave um Super chat earlier that I wanted to get to because um, uh, it was interesting and I will see what everyone thinks. But um, Nolia Bruini had messaged mm. earlier saying perhaps fear has en entwined in the American psyche so much since 9-11 that they referring to like the, the masses of people prefer to give their civil liberties away for a faux security. What do you think of that claim? That's there. Nalini or no, uh, yeah. Nalia is making a claim. You say, yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, that that was the tactic that, you know, at first the Bush administration used to basically, like, convince the American people that engaging in these wars was necessary, but more importantly, that giving up the, some of our privacy rights and things like that was necessary in order for the intelligence community to, like, foil terrorist plots and things like that. Um but it was all BS, right? I mean, it, I remember, I believe it was Diane Feinstein, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this is, you know, during the Obama administration. And she, like, it was after we had given up so much already. And it wasn't enough. Like, we kept hearing the the scaremongering on cable news. And in a panel, she said something along, along the lines of, no, we're not safer. Uh, these terrorist groups have bombs, big bombs. And I'm just like... Big, beautiful bombs. Big, beautiful bombs. Yeah, it was just so ridiculous. And it's never enough, right? And so it was clear to, I think, a lot of Americans, um, certainly those who protested the war in Iraq, um, that giving these civil liberties away was not the way to go. And that the United States, yes, what happened on 9-11 was awful and tragic and certainly a failure of the Bush administration to, to keep the country safe. Um, but to say that having these intelligence communities indiscriminately spy on every American to collect like metadata on every American, how exactly is that an efficient way, um, to keep an eye on potential, you know, domestic terrorists or, you know, they were spying on college students. Like that was one of the Mm -hmm. things the FBI was doing. The FBI was going on field trips with schools that had Muslim students. And like, what was the point of that? It was just disgusting. Like the stories coming out of, um, you know, the early aughts and and what the intelligence community was doing was awful. It was horrifying. The fact that Congress like gave away um, its power in regard to or its say its its ability to check the executive branch when it comes to engaging in these wars in the first place. That was awful. And there are severe ramifications to that. Uh, which which are playing out today. So, yeah, I think that fear was a useful tool, but I also wonder if it was useful at the time, but now Americans have become so desensitized to it that it's having further negative ramifications when it comes to something very serious, and that's coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right, that the, the, the years immediately after 9-11 were you know, the, the wars were popular on some level, right? And the, and people wanted, people wanted something, people wanted, you know, vengeance. Um, and that there was a genuine public support for doing something and people were very afraid. Um, the, I remember that there's a slew of little mini scares that happened afterwards, whether it was like the anthrax thing or like, uh, you know, a bunch of others that, um, people were just freaking afraid and and 24 was the most popular show on on network tv and it was all about that and um i watched it you know but uh you know but but it was it people were just very very afraid um genuinely afraid uh after 9-11 um and i think that in terms of civil liberties um i it, it's it, i was just i remember when the snowden revelations happened and i was immediately like i was immediately like i mean i was very inspired by snowden um when it happened and um, I thought he was very articulate and uh, you know, I was just like, I, I was just like full. And then just to my, my dismay, so many people, even like a lot of my friends and people in my life were just like, I don't give a shit, you know, like 
if I'm not doing anything wrong, like if you're not do doing I, anything yeah, wrong, not, you have nothing to worry nothing about. To there was a lot of right. that garbage. Yeah, nothing yeah. to hide. If I'm I'm not doing anything wrong, Why, they can look through my shit. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, man, you guys have been so uh, conditioned uh, to just accept this kind of thing laying down, and um, I, I don't know. I, and I and I for all and I I don't like to do this usually, but for all of like America's bravado in certain in its self-conception um and for all of it all, all that it makes a lot of like americans like to make fun of like prissy europeans for example i find that europeans stand up for themselves in the face of this kind of thing much more than americans do uh that americans like accept mm -hmm. you know harassment at the airports in a way that europeans wouldn't um that they accept you know europeans are are genuinely fighting back against uh, you know uh, invasions of privacy from from big tech in a way that americans are just not um and uh that there is and i don't know what it is maybe it's like some sort of conditioning of propaganda i don't know but um but i do find that here maybe it's maybe it was 911 i remember one good example okay so um in uh in 2004 in spain on march 11th there was a terrorist attack on a train that killed a bunch of people and it was like it was like it wasn't as big as 911 in the united states but it was kind of in the context of spain it was a huge deal um and the uh, right-wing government, there was elections shortly after it, and the right-wing government was punished for the attack um, for its because it was done it was carried out by Al Qaeda um, and and you know the right-wing government, which had been one of the big major supporters of the Iraq War, I mean, it was the three amigos, right? It was Bush, Blair, and Aznar in Spain. They were the three mm -hmm. major allies. Mm -hmm. um, Spaniards punished Aznar for his involvement in uh, for getting Spain involved in. Um, the Iraq war and they saw the terrorist attack uh, uh, as a direct consequence of Spain's decision to support the United States in the war so they punished him they didn't they didn't retreat to authoritarianism to um, a, a different kind of like right-wing reactionary politics they actually voted in the left um, and um, and so like I remember thinking like wow in the United States we just we did the opposite. We were just like ninety percent Bush approval rating. You know, Rudy Giuliani, we love you. Do whatever the fuck you want. Um, you know, like that. That was. I just remember seeing that the, the major difference in the way uh, Americans reacted to a terrorist attack and Spaniards did. And I'm not trying to say like Spaniards are like these amazing. You know, um, I just do think that in that in that discrete thing, mm -hmm. which is just the 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 sort of fear and and standing up for yourselves. I think that Americans are quite quite fearful well so just a couple thoughts because i i think i agree with a, a good chunk of what both of you said and and i do think there has definitely been some kind of conditioning out of uh 9-11 and um but just and maybe it's part of just the way the question is worded of that um american people decided to give up their civil liberties i think like it, it it almost implies that there was like some deal that was made between giving up the civil liberties in exchange for some kind of feeling of security, whether or not the security is real or legitimate. Um, but I, but there was no like decision made. And, and part of that's because like most people have so little power generally, but also specifically when it comes to issues of security at, at, at a national level um, that they have so little influence. I mean, we just know like when it comes to even like, basics like electoral politics like like and people have so little control over elected politicians 
like the deep state and the security state are that much more removed. They're, they're practically untouchable for most, for the vast majority of people in this country. And so I think, I think for a lot of them, it wasn't a, a give up of civil liberties so much as it was like just a resignation of like, I don't really have any choice because the powers that be are going to make decisions on, on my behalf. And I think there's probably a little bit more willingness in the last 20 years because of 9-11. Um, and it is like, it is still mind boggling just how uh, like people's responses to the Snowden revelations were so, um, I don't know, ambivalent or, or like that. that well, I think part of it had to do with just not understanding the scope of it. I think it's, but I think it's a couple things. It's like, it's not so clean cut. It's, it, it is issues. It is things like 9-11 and, and the, the war on terrorism, but it's also just kind of a resignation to because there's a lack of power. Um, yeah. And then there's also just like the the issue of it's just it's so complex that it's hard to really fathom what is going on, actually. Well, I think that there is one clear difference between, um, let's say, European countries versus the United States, and that's mm-hmm. the way the media runs, right? Because a specific example for Edward Edward Snowden and those revelations was that the corporate media immediately pivoted to a discussion about treason as -hmm. opposed to really weighing in on the civil liberties angle. Um, And so, you know, it's when you have the media kind of in cahoots with the current power structure um, it's going to cause these kinds of issues where uh, Americans like are more focused on whether or not Edward Snowden, like the cult of personality stuff, right? Whether or not Edward Snowden is a good guy versus, hey, why don't we process the revelations, uh, you know, that we uh, now know as a result of Edward Snowden, literally like sacrificing everything to tell us what's really going on. Um, and, you know, I, I think about the Fairness Doctrine a lot and and how much media has changed since the Fairness Doctrine was essentially gutted by the Reagan administration. You know, in, in, in the segment that I did today, you hear the criticism toward U.S. foreign policy from that one anchor slash reporter from Italy and they 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 don't have to abide by the same you know power structures that we have here in the United States like there's a profit motive uh there's access to journalism like all of that i think plays a role in why we get the kind of news that we do and i think that that has a huge impact on public opinion right, i don't think that's a, the end all be all but it's a huge part of it right there's um like with regard to snowden or just anything we don't really have the means in this country to actually have public conversations about this like for the reason anna's right. saying like the, the news is not going to cover this and so there really aren't any other institutions whether it be uh a, like a an alternative news i mean we have you know youtube shows and we try to do our part but at, at the level of like you know the like 350 million people that live in this country like a lot of them are just not tuned into any media. They do not have any other institutions that can like provide some kind of public forum or like, or or this, like this becomes so alien to just like the basics of trying to get by in their day-to-day, you know, work week that, uh, you know, I think that a lot of the ambivalence is probably just, again, like the massive complexity. And then like Anna's saying, just the, like the institutional bias against ever dealing with any of this stuff in favor of, you know, pushing war and, and sensationalism. Um, okay. So another question that we got, 
again, more of a comment than a question. Uh, thanks, Jack, of an audience. Um, is, uh, this is this is the super chat. It reads, a lot of activists still rally behind the fight for 15, but that's still a starvation wage. The Green New Deal is, is a start, but doesn't go far enough. Should we try to organize around stronger demands and negotiate down, or should we start uh, with modest demands and work up? Um, I think it depends on the issue. I mean, I think the, the fight for 15 has been a, in, in terms of my lifetime, it's been one of the most successful campaigns. I mean, it, it's maybe it's not saying much because we've just experienced decades and decades of, of retrenchment and defeat, but the fight for 15, because I remember it well, and I, spoiler alert, I, I hosted uh, the fight for 15 national conference, uh, in 2016, was it 2015 or 2016? Um, and, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it, when it started, I remember well was seen as ridiculous. It was, that was seen as like a, a ridiculous demand. Like it was like, what are you guys insane? Like, this is crazy. Um, everyone in the media laughed at them. Um, and, and it seemed at the time ridiculous. Um, and, but they've achieved concrete victories, both in major places like California and New York, but also in, places that you wouldn't expect um like and florida. what like florida yeah like florida. i mean i don't know if it's the same group that yeah no no it's yeah it's a national you know national movement with like local chapters and things like that but they you know florida but they also like you know i think like biloxi mississippi or i don't even remember like random places like that but um the um you know they they did succeed to the point where now the fight for 15 looks like not enough but when it started it looked like a ridiculous pie in the sky demand and now it now it doesn't seem that way anymore um so i think in the case of that like that has been a relatively successful uh demand um in terms of the green new deal um it is true that the green new deal won't stop climate change but it is also true that the green new deal would be the most transformative piece of legislation in america since uh 1965 uh i don't i don't i don't know what to say like i don't know what what else to say like it's um you can always go more you can always ask for more uh, i mean we could ask for but at a certain point you got to draw the line somewhere i don't and i don't know like where you do it and i don't know that there's a right answer to it mm-hmm uh, I have some thoughts, but Anna, do you want to chime in? Um, no, go take it away. I think Nando did a good job. I agree with him. I th- so part of the the fight for 15, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but part of the reason why it turned into uh, a political campaign rather than just service sector workers fighting for wage increases within their, whether it's the particular workplaces or within the firms broadly, so like in McDonald's or uh, other fast food uh, restaurants, et cetera. Um, a lot of that has to do with the challenges that service sector workers are facing right now and effectively just their structural leverage that um, this is something that we're encountering across the board, across the country in all different sectors where uh, workers are, uh, they, you know, they're at a disadvantage you know, in all situations, as like a working class person up against your boss, the boss obviously has far greater power compared to you. But like, we're in a historical juncture where uh, the working class under what you know we call neoliberalism 
has that much less uh, uh, structural leverage that it's it's become more difficult to organize. And that's part of the reason why we're in this rut that we're in. It's not just that, um, you know, it's not that like workers in the past wanted it more and, and the workers today just want to, you know, throw their hands up and give up and, you know, are, are too wed to consumer products or something. And, and therefore, that's why they don't fight to have a better life. Um, there's like real objective constraints in the way. And that's where they, they've decided they ended up deciding to move towards a, a national political campaign saying if we can't raise the wages within our individual workplaces, we can at the very least try to raise the minimum wage at the national level and try to get support from people across the country around this issue. Um, I think that's so to, to get to the actual question that was asked about, you know, do you. Uh, start with strong demands and negotiate down or start modest and work up. I mean, I think it's it's very kind of, in some ways, I think it's the wrong question. Um, and I think that's maybe why, like, Nando was also maybe, it's, it's a hard thing to answer because it, it, it kind of, we could just put out all of these demands and say we want everything, right? We could, like, this is, we could have, um, and this is what, like, the Sanders campaign did at its, you know, it, in some ways it was good and in some ways it wasn't as good, but that, you know, the Sanders campaign gave us like, this is the full platform of everything that we want. But obviously we all know that if Sanders had gotten elected president, he would not have been able to have gotten the vast majority of those things, you know, passed through Congress or, or implemented certainly within a first term, maybe not even within two terms, um, that it would have had to have then come down to political priorities of saying, well, these are the programs or this is the program that we most want to advance right now. Um, and again, I think these are just calculations based on, you know, power. And what I would say ultimately is just that, uh, and this is, this goes back to, to our conversation with Matt Huber, that like the left can't see the, the working class as just like a means to an end that, um, you know, or, uh, that the end is, you know, we have our, our big, long, like, list of demands that we want, um, which obviously we have that. And it's not a bad thing to have that. It's actually very good to have, like, coherent set of things we want to change in society. But then it can't just be, okay, well, um, you know, the workers are just thrown into action and, and we get we get what we want. Or uh, or, vi- or even worse, you know, we, we could just kind of get it with it, you know, without working class people that uh, we can just will it into existence. Or if we just get enough people calling a senator or something um, that I think I think the way to answer this ultimately is to focus on where are working class people actually, where are their struggles, um, how, you know, where are they hitting roadblocks and then how can the left actually effectively contribute to their struggles and, from there, building up relationships in a way where you can actually have coalitions that then can actually effectuate uh, the, the you know the list of demands, the wish list. Um, so I think it's I think it's different in different contexts. So you know, post Bernie, uh, healthcare fights have changed quite a bit. Like we've covered some of that recently on Jacobin Show with Natalie Scher and Christy Offenbacher on you know how the fight for Medicare for all nationally has changed versus the state level fights, for instance, in New York and California. Um, so I think that's the, the very, I know I'm giving an extremely long answer, but I think the short version is just that the left should, when we're trying to figure out how to contribute, you should start with like, where are the workers actually right now in these fights and how can we help effectively push them into, uh, you know, push the fight along, you know, like join forces with them to push along the fight 
Um, I think that's what Bernie 2016 was all about, actually, that that's the like the original platform came from. These are the actual demands that various workers are fighting for in their respective uh, kind of fields in, in society. Um, sorry, very long answer, but I hope I don't Did know. You guys that that? Did you guys get that? Did you guys get that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, Nando, we got one. The, oh, wait, hold on. We got this one for you. Says, does Nando think Mbappe will accept the offer from Real Madrid, and is he excited that he might be joining his favorite team? I've been uh, addicted to Twitter the last forty-eight hours, uh, and El Chiring- I want to do a whole decode on El Chiringuito, which is the greatest <laughs> show maybe in the history of television. You guys know what I'm talking about, but it's like a show that's like this summer has it's been around for years, but it's transcended boundaries and even like uh dimensions probably as to how insane and unhinged it is but uh um yeah i do think i do think it's gonna happen so i'm very excited um i'm just putting the super chat on screen but we don't have time to answer it um this was another question uh e pluribus ploppers (laughs) says we keep saying labor power is needed but without how-to guides it gets frustrating i want to hear more specifics on how to organize labor around worker co-ops and how to unify them for collective power um i would say i don't know if any of us could give like a like a really strong good answer right now and we're also running out of time but this is something i think we'll want to try to cover more uh in the future that um, so we appreciate the super chat and we'll make an effort to try to address issues like worker co-ops and, and kind of the, the means, the tactics and strategies of, of like advancing worker power. Good place to start is James McAlevey's book. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Alrighty guys. Yeah, I agree. I got to run to right. my day job. Yeah, I do too. Uh, but anyway, thank you everyone for watching. Thank you, Kale, um, for all your hard work and uh, the super chats. And uh, make sure you subscribe, uh, like and share the stream. Uh, help us, you know, push the show out to a broader audience uh, so we can hopefully change hearts and minds and get to a better place in this country and around the world. We love you guys. Have an awesome weekend. We'll see you next weekend. Bye.